Hey, welcome to church today, Bentry. Glad you are here in person. All of you, all of you who are watching online, we're grateful to have these moments to share together with you. I just constantly am amazed at all that God is doing here at Bentry. This morning we had a beautiful membership gathering and there are several new members to our church who are actually in this service because they joined just this last service. So let's welcome them to our family today. We're grateful for the unique stories that bring people to our body life here. This last Thursday, Stacey and I had a chance to just be a part of our special needs banquet, and wow, it was so remarkable. Several of our groups came together, and members came together, and, and hosted a carnival for all of our special needs kids, and even adults there upstairs in the, in the gym area. And then other groups came around and provided a beautiful, elegant meal for the parents of our special needs kids and adults, and it just reminded me what this church is all about. Reminded me of what this Christmas season is all about, this gift of sharing love and kindness and sacrifice all around the hope that we have in Jesus. And I was amazed to see our special needs families and kids and young adults who are made beautifully in the image of God, made perfect by Him, expressing joy and laughter here at our church. And if you're a part of our special needs ministry, we love you, we thank you, we need you. You embody the beautiful character and nature of Jesus in such a unique way. And we have the most amazing Carol Slater, who leads our special ministry. Wow, she is phenomenal. What a gift to God's kingdom. And right here at Bentry. Wow, we've got a fan over there. We got a, there she is over there. Let's give it up for Carol one more time. We love you, Carol. She is truly a hero. One of the scariest times in my life uh, was when my mom and I were standing outside of an operating room where my dad was being operated on. And the doctors quickly realized there was this source of internal bleeding. And they couldn't find out where it was. They couldn't figure out where it was. So they came to us and said, you got to pray. There's something serious happening. This is over 10 decades ago. Um, but they said, there's something serious happening going on. And unless we get to the, the source of this bleeding, it's going to be a real life-threatening issue. Well, that's not good news. And then the doctor went back into the operating room, and, and then just within a few minutes, they called code blue, which meant his body was shutting down, and he was having a cardiac arrest, and, and all the nurses and all team members from other divisions came and were trying to bring him back to life. And man, that's definitely not a good feeling. You're like walking, just, or just standing there amazed at what's happening, baffled with fear and concern and anxiety and hopelessness. Wondering if you'll ever get to see your dad again. And that was a scary moment. But thankfully, 30 minutes later, the doctor came back and said, God has heard your prayers and your dad is stable and he's safe and things are okay. He's still in the operating room, but things are okay. You can relax now. And I remember just in that moment, we hadn't yet seen our dad. He was still in the operating room. He was still unconscious. We hadn't physically seen him. But good news from a trusted source lifted the weight off of us. Like we hadn't physically placed our eyes on our dad. My mom hadn't seen her husband physically, but just good news removed the weight off of our soul. Maybe you remember being in moments where you felt hopeless and it felt dark, but someone called you and told you it's going to be okay. Someone texted you. Someone showed up out of the blue and told you just something that changed your perspective and lifted the weight off of your soul. Maybe the reality hadn't changed yet, but good news constantly resurrects hope deep in our soul. I heard about a Nazi Germany camp in World War II where American soldiers were held captive there. And probably like other Nazi camps, 
These brave men and women, our soldiers, were not fed. They were malnourished. They weren't cared for at all. And these American soldiers walked with slumped backs and downcast faces and totally discouraged because they didn't believe they were coming home. They thought they were dying in those camps and it was a horrible time. They were discouraged and they wouldn't even talk to each other because of the, the, the gravity of the situation they were in. And the Nazi soldiers watched behind prison fences as these American soldiers lived in such devastated conditions. But then the next morning, one of the mornings, something drastically changed. The Nazi soldiers hadn't done anything different. They had still not fed the American soldiers. They didn't do anything different. But it seemed as if though everything changed for these American soldiers. They were laughing. They were rejoicing. They would huddle together in groups and talk about the beauty of one day when they get home. It seemed as if though still in prison, still not fed, everything changed. And what had happened was the transistor radio had been smuggled in overnight. And they heard the news that the Allied forces had landed in Normandy. They were quickly making their way inland. And these soldiers knew just within a few days, there's going to be victory. We're going to get to go home. We'll be released. Nothing in that moment in their physical condition had changed. But to them, everything changed. Why? Because good news resurrected hope in their soul. These few weeks in December, we are looking at breaking good news that Isaiah delivered 2,700 years ago to a group of people who were living between war and exile. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, those in the southern kingdom of Israel are living in absolute terror and fear. Because the Syrian Empire is ruling the world and they have just taken into captivity the northern kingdom of Israel. And the southern kingdom is now under the same threat. There is religious chaos and political confusion and absolute social devastation. There is famine going on and just utter confusion, darkness and hopelessness. And but right into the midst of such a condition... Such oppression, such hardship. Here comes Isaiah, smuggling in, bringing, breaking through this good news of great hope for those that are reading his message. This great news is found in Isaiah 9, verse 6. And most likely you have, if you have been around church, you've read this news. You've got it somewhere on your Christmas mug somewhere. You'll buy a Hallmark card, probably with these words stetched in it. So let's read this passage together, Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wow, what good news. Isaiah, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of confusion and darkness, speaks of the birth of a child, the giving of a son, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. This is the breaking in of good, radical news that resurrected hope then and now. Last week, we looked at how Isaiah, speaking of a future prophecy, speaks in past tense and even present tense. He speaks about how those who are living in darkness have seen a great light. 
To those who are in the shadow of death, light has dawned. He speaks how this child has already increased joy and how people have already rejoiced before him as in the days of of joy and dividing the spoil. Now he says in verse 6, to us, not a child will be born, a child is born. A son is giving. How strange to talk about a 700-year prophecy in present tense. If someone you know who's without a child and long before they got pregnant comes up to you and says, oh, a child is born, a son is given, you'd be thinking maybe something's not all right for them. And it's the same with Isaiah. He's talking about a future prophecy in present tense because Isaiah is not responding to the reality of where he is. He is responding to the revelation of what God has said. To Isaiah, this revelation, this glimpse of promise is just as true, just as real as his current reality. He knows God to be a promise keeper. He knows God to be a faithful God that if God said it, he will do it. Sometimes the hardest moments in our life is the gap between what God has said and what we see. It's the distance, it's the darkness, it's the confusion between what God has said and what we see. God, I know you promised me this. I know you've said this in your word. I know you've laid this desire, this passion in my heart. But my predicament, what my circumstances tell me is not the same as what God has promised. And those are moments of discouragement and darkness for us. The distance, the gap between what God has said and what we see. But Isaiah is operating in faith here. He's got the faith that is the assurance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. And to Isaiah, our revelation of what God will do is just as true and just as real as what God has said. And what he sees. So this Christmas season, if there's a gap between what you see and what God has said, trust what he said. Lean into his promise. You can count on him. He is good. He is faithful. Eventually, Israel would go 400 years without a prophet. 400 years of silence without the sighting of an angel. And all people had to hang on to, hold on to, were the words of the Torah, were the words of the Old Testament that prophesied the coming of a Messiah. Can you imagine telling this to your kids and your kids look up at you and ask, Dad, Mom, have you heard anything? Have you seen a prophet recently? Have you seen an angel? How do you know this is true? The dad and mom would say, no, son, we haven't heard for years, for centuries. Well, how about your granddad? How about your great-granddad? Imagine seasons of darkness. But even through those 400 years of silence and chaos, God was at work. God was reordering empires in the world. He was getting the world ready to receive his son. And eventually, through darkness and chaos and confusion, this 700-year-old prophecy of Isaiah would come to fruition. It would be fulfilled. And to us, a child is born. A son is given. God was faithful to his amazing promise. In Isaiah 9, 6, Isaiah describes Jesus, this child to be born, as both God and human. As both God and human. Notice the beginning of verse 6. To us a child is born. That speaks to the humanity of Jesus. A child is born. But he doesn't stop there. A child is born and a son is given. 
That speaks to the deity of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus. A child is born. He is human, but a son is given. He is God. Imagine if you had to plan the arrival of God. Okay, you had all the money in the world, all of the resources in the world, all of the time and all of the people in the world to plan the arrival of God. You would do a really good job. I've met some of you. You are ultimately the party planner. Like you are amazing. You would think about who needed to be there, and I bet all the most important people of the world will be there. The influencers, the bloggers, the vloggers. All those with prestige and power and position, dignitaries around the world would be present. It would be the most live-streamed event of all time. Emojis flying everywhere, all over the world. You would make sure that anyone, everyone could see the moment that God arrived. It would surpass the opening ceremony of the Olympics. It would be greater than the halftime show at the Super Bowl. I would throw in a few bolts of lightning and some rumbling of thunder. It would be the talk of town for decades and centuries to come. That's what we would do if we planned the arrival of God. But God, who planned his own arrival, did none of that. He did the exact opposite of what we probably would have done. He came as a child, the middle of the night in Bethlehem. Surrounded by his peasant parents and forgotten shepherds. Nothing significant, nothing glorious. Seemingly about that moment, he came into obscurity. Almost unnoticed. He came as an infant, as a child, just like every other child. He came as a baby. He was fully human. Jesus was born as a human and he grew up as a human. He got hungry, he got tired, he got sleepy, he needed to sleep. He had to listen to his own parents. He was tempted to do wrong, just like you and I are tempted to do wrong. He probably got sick and caught cough here and there. I even imagine Jesus got nervous and he got anxious. You know what? I think he might have picked his nose from time to time. <laughs> I know, it's so sacrilegious to say but Jesus was fully human, fully, completely human. I think the church has done an amazing job defending the deity of Jesus, and that's right, and that's good, because the Bible is full of truths and scriptures about who Jesus is. He is God. But I think what we have done, a lesser job, is defending the humanity of Jesus, declaring that he is fully human like us. And interestingly enough, the first heresy that rose in the early church was not an attack on the deity of Jesus. It was an attack on the humanity of Jesus. It was Gnosticism that said Jesus didn't have a human body. He only appeared to be human. He was only displaying him. He wasn't really human. No, no, no. Jesus was truly, fully human. He was a child that was born. He was born into a real place called Bethlehem in a real time where Caesar Augustus was emperor and Quirinius was governor to real people named Mary and Joseph. He was fully human. Notice what the writer of Hebrews, how he says it. Writer of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 to 15. It reads like this. Since the children have flesh and blood. That's you and I. Since we're human, since we have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. 
and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. The writer of Hebrews is saying, because you're human, because I'm human, because touch yourself, you got flesh and blood. I don't see any ghosts and angels in this room. You're flesh and blood because we're human. For Jesus to defeat death and the devil, he had to be human like us. He had to know our own temptations. He had to feel what we feel. For him to be our high priest, he had to empathize with us. Know our struggles and our pain. He knows us fully. Why? Because he was fully human. For him to be our substitute, taking on himself the wrath of God that we were owed, he had to be fully human. For the blood of Jesus to count on our behalf, for him to overcome the fear of death and the power of the enemy, he was fully human. He was human when he grew up. He was human when he died. Jesus, fully human. This is another amazing truth about the humanity of Jesus. The humanity of Jesus was never shed off of him. It wasn't like he became human and then at the resurrection he stopped being fully human. No, no, he was always, he became human and stayed human through the resurrection and through the ascension. He kept his humanity. The angels would say to the disciples, just as you see this Jesus go, he'll come back as fully God, fully human. In fact, Paul will write to Timothy these words in 1 Timothy Chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. The man, Jesus Christ. One mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ. He is fully human. God broke the silence of heaven through the sound of a child crying in Bethlehem. That's what he did. God will respond to the hopeless cry of humanity through the helpless cry of an infant born in a manger. The finality of death would be overcome by the birth of a child. The mystery of history was the coming of a baby, the incarnate son of God. Sin will be erased and evil will be rid of and salvation will be secured because of the life, death, and resurrection of this child that we call Jesus. He is a child that was born to us. But we know that the story doesn't stop there. He is a child that is born, comma, and a son that is given. He is fully man and fully God. In the course of history, statisticians say that over 108 billion children have been born. 108 billion people have occupied planet Earth. They've lived. But this month, the whole world stops and pauses to commemorate not the birth of any one of those 108 children except for one. Only one who was unique in his birth, who was unique in his existence because only Jesus was a child that was born, but at the same time a son that is given. Only Jesus was fully human and fully God. Here's a true statement. Jesus never became God. I know you're thinking, I knew it, this new pastor is a heretic. <laughs> what have we done? Jesus never became God. Why? Because he was always God. Amen. He was always God. 
for all eternity long. He was God. His story didn't begin in Bethlehem. He has always existed. He is the creator of all that has been made. All things exist in him. that are held together by him. He is a centerpiece of all history. He didn't begin in Bethlehem. He was always God. He was God in the womb. He was God in the manger. He was God as a teenager. He was God as an adult. He was God on the cross. He was God in the grave. And because he was God, he got up out of that grave. Amen? He was always God. A child that is born is the eternal son of God that's been given to us. So what happened at Bethlehem? Notice that Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter 4, verse 4. And Paul says, but when the set time had fully come. I want you to pause there. God knew what he was doing all across history. We thought he was absent, but he was active at work behind the scenes. When the set time, just when the world was ready, God sent his son. He sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. In Bethlehem, the eternal son of God was sent just at the right time, born of humanity, born of a woman, born under the law, so we might receive sonship and freedom. John 1.14, one of my favorite verses. The word became flesh. The Word of God, the eternal Logos of God, the Word of God became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. The child that was born was the Son of God given to us. He became flesh, God in flesh, the incarnate deity. It's this very truth, this nature of God, God and man that inspired Charles Wesley in 1739 to write these words in a hymn that we sing during this time of the year. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the angels, hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. Glory to the newborn king. A child is born. A son is given. The word became flesh. The eternal son of God took on skin and came to live with us. Isaiah now goes on to give us four names. These descriptions of who this child would be. These names that would describe his reputation, who he would be. And in the Old Testament, in ancient times, these names were pretty common to have. They were called throne names. They would describe how a king ruled and how a person reigned in the world. So if a king was mighty in battle, he might be given the throne name of unrivaled warrior. If a ruler was for a social reform and justice, he might be called the protector of the just and we use this phrase sometimes, so-and-so has built a name for themselves. We're talking about what they've accomplished and what they've done, the reputation they have built around themselves. And here, before Jesus comes to planet Earth, even before we know the testimony of Jesus, Isaiah is prophesying who Jesus is, how he will lead, who he will be to us. He gives us four pairs, and we're going to look at one today. These are the names that Isaiah gives about Jesus, and he will be called 
wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. Prince of peace. I want to just touch on this name of Jesus as wonderful counselor. This child that is born, the son that is given, he is a wonderful counselor. Now we use the term wonderful to describe just about anything. I mean, the lasagna was wonderful. This cold weather in December is really great and wonderful in Texas. Your family is wonderful. Your pastor is wonderful. I know you're saying that. This church is wonderful. There's so many things we describe as wonderful. But you know, in the Bible, the word wonderful only appears about 24 times. And every single one of those instances, this word wonderful was reserved to talk only about God. It was a word designated. It was a word to describe God alone because only he is full of wonder. Only he is worthy of all and such amazement. Only God is wonderful. The word wonderful in the Hebrew speaks of a phenomenon that is beyond human explanation of something so miraculous and something so supernatural that when we see it or we see him, we can't help but stand in awe of that thing that's wonderful. When we experience the presence of someone wonderful, we can't help but leap with joy at the wonder and awe it inspires in our heart. The Old Testament writers would describe the works of God, the wonders of God, whether it was God splitting the Red Sea or bringing his Shekinah glory down on Mount Sinai, people would stand in awe of what God would do, of who he is. God alone is wonderful. But here Isaiah takes all of those powerful, vivid imageries of the wonder of God and he says this, Jesus, this child, this son, he is the wonder of God. Jesus is the wonder of God. He is God's greatest wonder. He is God's greatest miracle. He alone is the wonder of God. This Christmas season, December 2021, Are you in awe of him? Do you stand in wonder of who he is? His greatness, his kindness, his mercy. How beautiful, how eternal, how majestic he is. I pray that Jesus would not belong in the category of wonder associated with all of the other things we call wonderful but that he would be in a category of wonder all by himself. Someone so indescribable, someone so majestic at the sound of his name, our soul leaps with joy. Our heart stands in awe and wonder of how good and gracious he is, that we would feel the wonder of God again. His glory, his majesty, not just looking at him, but having him deep in our heart. His spirit resident in our heart. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. He is in us. Oh, how full of wonder and awe is that. The term wonderful speaks to the glory, the majesty of Jesus. But then Isaiah says he is a wonderful counselor and that changes everything. He's a wonderful counselor. So while the word wonderful describes the glory, the majesty, the magnitude of God, the word counselor describes the nearness of God, the closeness of God, the attention of God towards you and towards me. 
Have you ever met a counselor who stood at a distance and stood aloof and disengaged and kept their distance from you? If you have, that's not a good counselor. You need to get a new one. A counselor is better than an advisor who's better than a consultant. Because advisors and consultants, they can stand from afar. They can give you advice standing on the outside. They can even give you a recommendation and wish you good luck. Let me know if you need me again. They can come in and out of your story, in and out of your life as they wish. But Jesus is not a wonderful consultant or a wonderful advisor. He is a wonderful counselor. Because the nature of a counselor is to move towards you. The nature of Jesus as a counselor is to be invested in your life, to be deeply interested in you. He doesn't stand from afar and give advice. No, he lives within us. He comes close to us. He draws near to you and I, and he becomes the very counselor we need. He is deeply interested in you. The writer of Psalm 32 verse 8 records it like this. God speaking to us. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Circle that phrase, my loving eye on you. That's how God is towards you. You may feel far from him, but he's not far from you. You may feel distant from him, but no matter where you are, no matter what part of your faith journey you are on, he's got his loving eye securely set on you. He's a counselor that doesn't give up, that doesn't take a step back. Even if you run from him, he says, I've got my eye on you. I'm not mad at you. I've got my loving eye on you, my gracious eye on you. My kindness is set on you. That's the hope of the Christmas season. That through the ups and downs of history, through the rebellion of mankind, the loving eye of God has stayed steady on us. Jesus is a wonderful counselor who is near to us. He's a wonderful counselor who knows us intimately. He knows everything about us. Every single detail. Things you don't even know about yourself. He knows. As a counselor full of wisdom and knowledge. He knows you fully. Psalm 139. David says God knit you together. He knows your innermost beings. Every single day of your life was written before one of them came to be. He knows you fully. He knows all about you. I read this last week. In many articles that every single human being has with from anywhere from 500 to 700 gifts and abilities. It's pretty amazing. You, yes, even you and even me. We have hundreds between 500 to 700 gifts and abilities that we possess. Can I tell you, it's God who placed every one of those in you. It's God who formed every one of those gifts and abilities through your unique experience and life opportunities. It's God who placed every single one of those in you. You are pretty amazing because you were made by God. He put gifts and passions and desires in you, things that you have not even yet come to know, but one day you will realize, and God is a wonderful counselor because in his sovereign grace and his loving hand, he knits you together. He takes all of those hundreds and maybe more passions and gifts and abilities you have, and he channels them towards a purpose that you can never even imagine for his glory and for the good of others. This is how wonderful he is. He knows you fully. The crazy thing is he knows you and still loves you. 
Some people will love you until they get to know you and they start ghosting you afterwards. They're nowhere to be found. I thought we were tight, man. Now they stop calling and texting because something about what they learned about you has put them at a distance. But God knows every single detail about you and he's still crazy about you. That was one of the most freeing things about his love for me. He knows me fully and still unconditionally loves me. He's still crazy about you having known you. Jeremiah 29, verse 11, a famous passage we probably have come across. God speaks to a group of people about to go into captivity, about to go into a horrible time of discouragement and pain and even death. And he gives them a promise for them to hang on to if he could just give them one word. Jeremiah 29, 11 is the word that God wanted them to hold on to. And here it is. For I know, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Imagine how comforting that was to a group of people who did not know where they were going. Who did not know the outcome of an exile and a captivity they would be in. To know that God knows me. I don't know what's ahead of me, but he knows me. I don't know the uncertainty I'm walking in, but he knows me. He's got a plan for me. That's what they held on to in 70 years of Babylonian captivity. God knows me. I can count on him. He's got a plan. He is faithful. He knows you. In the midst of your darkness, in the midst of your distress, in the midst of the very chaos you are living through, God wants to remind you today as a wonderful counselor, I got you. I know you, I see you, I'm with you. He knows us. He's near, he knows, and he can be trusted. His counsel can be trusted. As a counselor, you can trust him. In ancient times, a counselor was the person who had stood next to a king, giving him strategy for battle, giving him counsel for national decisions, a counselor would whisper into the ear of a king, here's what you do, here's the strategy, here's what I think is best. And a, and a king would listen. And here Isaiah is saying, you can trust the counsel of God. It is true. It is good. Think about all of the questions we every single day wrestle with. What is my purpose? What am I here for? What is life all about? How do I take the horrible mess of my life? How can God use me? How can I make sense of the pain? How do I deal with loss? Where should I live? Who should I marry? All of the multiple questions that bombard our mind every single day. And Isaiah is saying, you have the resource of a wonderful counselor who can be trusted. You can count on him to bring clarity into every bit of confusion that we have. Here's how Paul says it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3. Colossians 2, verse 3, Paul says, In whom, meaning Christ, in Christ are hidden all. Say that with me, all, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, every bit of it, every single treasure of wisdom and knowledge, every bit of the clarity you need, of the answer you need is hidden in Jesus Christ. There's only one place to go, no matter what your question is, no matter what your confusion is, what your distress is, it's all hidden in Jesus. He both has the answer and he is the answer. He's near, he knows you, he can be fully trusted. I think about in the New Testament how often people stood in amazement, not simply at the miracles that Jesus did, but at his wisdom, at his counsel. Even as a 12-year-old young boy, 
the leaders in the synagogue who had been trained their whole life, meet Jesus, a 12-year-old kid, and they are astonished by his wisdom and knowledge. Anyone who heard Jesus teach, they would have heard the greatest scholars of the day, but one sermon from Jesus, one teaching moment from Jesus, and they say about him, who is this man who teaches with such authority and wisdom? Who is he? I think about Nathaniel who came across Jesus thinking he was totally unknown to Jesus. And Jesus met him and Nathaniel realizes, he knows everything about me. Nathaniel blatantly asks Jesus, how do you know me? And Jesus simply says, Nathaniel, before you met me, I saw you. I've known you your whole life. I know everything about you. Nathaniel didn't see Jesus do a miracle, but in that moment, at the absolute counsel and wisdom and knowledge of God, Nathaniel simply has to respond and say, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. I am blown away by your wonderful knowledge and counsel. I think about the woman at the well who Jesus meets in John 4. She is counting on not being known but she meets Jesus and he reads her mail. He shares her complicated story. She thinks he may be a prophet and then comes to realize, no, 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 he's more than that. He is the Messiah. So she leaves her water jars and goes into town. And what is it that she says to everybody she meets? Come and meet a man who told me everything I've ever done. The counsel of God, the knowledge of God didn't push her away. It brought her clothes. Come meet a man who knows me fully well. This is Jesus, the wonderful counselor that is, wonder, that is worthy of awe and wonder. I was thinking about moments in my own life where Jesus has been a wonderful counselor. The longer I thought, the longer the list became. Couldn't keep track of all the moments where Jesus gave counsel and wisdom. And what I realized was he was a wonderful counselor, both in the big moments of life and in the small moments of life, both in the peak moments of my story and in the everyday details of my life. Think about his counsel towards me and my call to ministry, and I didn't want to do it, but his counsel through his word and internal conviction that I couldn't run from his whisper deep in my soul that led me to vocational ministry. I think about his wonderful counsel when I married Stacy, and it was wonderful counsel. <laughs> through godly people around me, through his word, through a sense of peace, and taking a step in marriage. I think about his amazing, wonderful counsel and saying yes to come to Bentry. I can show you my Bible with a sideline of journals. But through his word, I kept writing Bentry all over. And Stacey told me, if you don't go to Bentry, you got to get a new Bible. <laughs> I guess if it doesn't work out, what are you going to do? But it was his counsel, wonderful, true counsel, they let me think about smaller moments of going into a hard meeting or a hard conversation. It's counsel that leads you. When you don't know what decision to make, it's counsel that speaks clarity. When you're grieving, when you're disappointed, it's counsel that brings comfort. When life doesn't make sense and there's no logical reasoning, it's counsel that speaks life. It doesn't make common sense, but he gives spirit sense. And you know that it's true. For you, he is a wonderful counselor, just as he has been to me. Paul, when he writes in Romans 8, Paul has in the last eight chapters just, 
unravel the beautiful mystery of salvation. And here in chapter 8 of Romans, he pauses for a hymn of praise at the wisdom of God, at the counsel of God. He pauses for a praise break as if. And here's what Paul says in Romans 8 about the wisdom of God. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And the church said, Amen. He is trustworthy. His ways are unsearchable. His wisdom is incomprehensible. He is trustworthy. His truth can be trusted forever and ever. Maybe you're joining us online. You're in the room and you're wondering, how can I be forgiven? How can I have a relationship with God? How can I have eternity? What is salvation all about? Where do I even begin? That is the most important question you'll ever ask. And the answer to that question will determine the rest of eternity. But here's the answer. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 29, It is because of him, meaning God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become what? For us the wisdom of God. Jesus is the very wisdom of God. That is, here's what it means, our righteousness, our holiness and redemption. Jesus is plan A and there is no plan B. He is the very wisdom of God, meaning how you were redeemed, how you are righteous, and how you are made holy. It is all because of Jesus. He is the revelation of God. He is the fullness of it. He is the very wisdom of God. And so if you're searching for meaning, for new life, for eternity, it all begins with Jesus. It all ends with Jesus. It's all him, the very wisdom of God, the wonderful counselor being offered to you in this very moment. Imagine there's something that you have walked in with today that you need clarity on. James says, if you lack wisdom, ask God. Ask him. He gives li wisdom liberally, generously. Just think about the one thing that you walked in seeking clarity on. Would you ask him right now? So Jesus, this Christmas season, I need you to be who you have promised to be, a wonderful counselor. He will be true to what he has said. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Oh, how we stand in wonder of a child born, a son given, that we call wonderful counselor. God, will you resensitize our heart again to the wonder of Christ, the wisdom of God, the revelation from above. God, who took on skin, walked in our shoes, felt our pain, fully human, fully God, you empathize with us. And as Caleb said earlier, it's not because you said so. It's because you have been there. You have been human as we are human. Fully God, fully man. So today we ask for your counsel in areas of uncertainty, in areas of confusion, in moments of pain and grief, Wonderful counselor, we desperately need you. For anyone here today who feels distant from God, without a relationship with Jesus, may you be the wisdom that gives redemption, makes them righteous and holy before 
Almighty God, Jesus, the wisdom of God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church family, so much for joining us online. We encourage you to take your next steps today, whatever that might be, and here in the room as well. There's a prayer room waiting for you, a welcome center with people waiting to answer your questions. We pray that God would inspire you today to take your next steps. Hey, before we're dismissed today, I want to give you a leadership update. A leadership update. Mike and Becky Wiltz are no stranger to Bentry Bible Fellowship. Many of you know them. So many of us admire and celebrate how God has used them powerfully here at Bentry really over the last 22 years when they joined as members. And over the last 18 years, Mike Wills has been an integral part of leadership here at Bentry. For six years, he served as an elder. And for the last 18, so for the last 12 years, he has served so faithfully, so wonderfully as our executive pastor. Mike Wills is a phenomenal human being. He's an amazing pastor. He is a rare find because in him is not just leadership ability and administration ability, but in him is the heart of a servant. In his heart is deep love for people. He is a phenomenal person who has served our church so well. He has led our church through some very, very difficult times, very difficult season. He has carried the weight of leading our church. Over the last eight months since Stacey and I have been here at Bentry, we have grown to love the Wills family, Becky and Mike. We have enjoyed getting to know them and serving alongside of them. And we are so incredibly grateful for the numerous accomplishments that God did through their life here at Bentry over the last many decades. And all of those things are true and right. And at the same time, I want you to know today that after much conversation and prayer, with Mike and with their family, the elders have come to an agreement that Mike's season of ministry on our staff is coming to an end at the end of this month. The season of ministry on our staff is coming to an end of vocational ministry. Solomon tells us there are seasons for everything in life, and sometimes the starts and the stops of those seasons don't make a whole lot of sense, but we trust in what God is doing. But after much prayer and conversation and discernment, the elders have come to an agreement that this may be the end, that this is the end of Mike's leadership here on our team, on our staff as executive pastor. And you already know this, that Mike is incredibly dearly loved by our church. He is admired by all of our staff. He is thought so well of by the elders because Mike has served with impeccable integrity and character. He has led so selflessly and sacrificially, especially in the last few years in the absence of a lead pastor. Mike Wilson has assumed so many new responsibilities and served so well this body. He loves you. He cares for you. He has served so well. But we know that at this time, the best of our knowledge, that this is his season of ministry coming to an end here at Bentry. So I want you to be praying for Mike Wills and praying for Becky and their whole family as they make this transition at the end of this month. And we know that whatever God has in front of them will be remarkable, that God is going to use the Wills family. He's going to use Mike and use Becky to continue to make an incredible impact in the lives of others. Wherever this corner takes them, it's going to be amazing. And God will continue to use Mike and the Wills family. Have the greatest, utmost respect for Mike and for Becky. And our church will forever be grateful for their leadership. We will always honor and love the Wilts family. And they are here today. And I want you at the end of the service, they'll be available down front. I hope that you'll take a few moments 
and let them know how much you love and appreciate their ministry, their friendship to you and to our church. Would you pray for the Wills family with me? Father, we thank you so much for Mike, for Becky, for their whole family. We thank you for the leadership that they have brought to our church in great times and hard times as well. We thank you for the difference they've made in so many people's lives. God, for the strategy that he has led and for the staff that he has poured into, for the impact that would continue to happen because of his faithfulness in ministry. Now, in the season of transition, we pray for your counsel on them, for your goodness upon them, for your provision and protection upon them. We thank you that we can trust you. In seasons of change, we can fully be confident that you are good and you are faithful. So be with Mike, be with the Wolves family. We pray, God, that you would give them a glimpse of your great plan for them. We pray that the days ahead in ministry are greater than the days behind them. They would step into fully, confidently, with great hope and joy, and we could celebrate your goodness and impact through them in the world. So be with our brother Mike. Be with Becky. We love them. We honor you for them. They'll always be our friend. They'll always be admired and loved here at Venture. We thank you for your plans that are good and faithful on their behalf. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. We just show your appreciation today to the Wolf family. Amen. God bless you, church family. Have a great rest of the day. Come and say hi to Mike and Becky. We'll see you soon.